Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 66. It's the last chapter in the book of Isaiah, appropriately enough, because it's the last Sunday in our series through Isaiah. It's kind of a bittersweet day. Uh, we've been in Isaiah since the beginning of the year, and, um, and, and we're wrapping up a series this morning. Um, th- this morning's sermon is the last in a, in a section of our series where we're trying to unpack what Isaiah says we should, how Isaiah says we should respond to all the things Isaiah has told us about God, about ourselves, and about what God has done to save us. We've been saying all along that this is only good news. All, of, all that we've read is only good news to us if we know how to claim it, if we know what it looks like for us to go latch on to it. And, and we've, been, we've, we've, we've been unpacking how really everything we're supposed to do in response to what Isaiah has said is, is really just trust in God and different layers of what it would look like for us to trust in Him, to take Him at His word, to believe that His promises are trustworthy. So, for example, we talked, we talked about how what it looks like to, to live towards each other if we, as if we were really trusting in God's promises. How if, if we really believed His promises and we're satisfied in them, it would free us up to give ourselves away to each other. But if we're, if we're pressing each other, if we're, if we're actually not just forgetting about and neglecting each other's needs, but even actively contributing to each other's problems, well, what we're showing is that we just don't really trust God. We're out to get, we're out to get what we can f- from our own power. We're, we're sort of living a survival of the fittest lifestyle, and that doesn't look, that doesn't, reflect well on God's promises to us. We talked, um, we, we've talked even further about, about how some layers of trust in God are meant to, they're meant to, to, to start to change not just our, society, our social interactions with each other, but our, even our own sort of inner security, our inner peace, that if we believe these things were true, then we wouldn't be going through our lives as if we had to fear what's around every corner. We would trust that God is big enough to handle problems that we can't even anticipate yet. We even, we even looked at, uh, at a story in chapter 36 and 37 of, of Isaiah, of Hezekiah, who, who faced with an army that was too big for any of, any of Israel's resources, basically just lays out this, this threat before God, doesn't even say anything about it. He just shows it, shows it for what it is to God and just leaves it there for him, in front of him. And how this sort of self-emptying is what it looks like to claim God's promises in faith. And now, today, we get to the final chapter in the book, and it exposes for us, or points us to, I think, what is another overarching way of understanding trust in God. How the promises that God has made to us restore to us our rightful purpose for being. That really, we were made to worship. A reason we were created was to worship God. And this... This chapter and its first two verses point us to what that looks like. Now, the reason this matters so much, the reason, that we, the reason this passage and, and our close attention to it is so important is that God, is, through, all through Scripture, is really particular about people, how people worship Him. He, he always sets clear terms on, for how He's to be engaged. And He holds His people really very strictly accountable, especially in the Old Testament, for coming to Him on those terms. And unless it just seemed too particular to us, I think even in our own experience, this makes sense, right? So last week was Mother's Day, and we got my mother a present. And the idea, the objective is to give a present to my mother that, that shows love and respect and homage to her, that's tailored to her and her taste. It requires knowing what the person you're giving a gift to uh, would receive well. If I'd given my mom a subscription to my favorite Auburn football recruiting site, 
Do you guys know about recruiting sites? You know that there's sites out there you can pay money to read about where high school players are likely to play football next year? And I have, I have been a patron of such sites. And, and if I had gotten my mom a, a, an annual subscription to my favorite one, that would be a gift that's more about me than about her, right? It would show that I, it, it would show I'm consumed with myself and not attuned to what she wants or what our, who she is or what our relationship is like. It would be off base. Similarly, we want to approach God. We've got to approach him on terms that he sets. Otherwise, it's an arbitrary guessing game. It's like you may as well just take two sticks in your yard and beat them together and say, here, here Lord, this is my service to you. Here's my gift to you. How do you know what he wants unless you listen to him and respond to the terms that he's set? So it makes sense that God would be particular, especially given God's holiness, especially given all that he's told us he's like. You don't approach this kind of God, Isaiah's God, in the same way that you approach Anyone else in your experience, you've got to be very particular about it when you're dealing with someone like this. And this passage points us to how. So ultimately, God cares, cares... Let me start over. Ultimately, I, I was going to say He cares more about how you come to Him than, or about how you are in yourself, sort of your, the condition of your heart when you come to worship Him than the terms on which you come. And I don't want to minimize the importance of God telling us what to bring to Him, right? Or the importance of... The, all the regulations in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and all that sort of stuff. That stuff matters, but it doesn't have any effect unless you bring it in a, from a particular posture towards God. He is as concerned with and only concerned with worship when the person who is worshiping him is characterized by a certain heart condition. And that's what this, these verses are about. Now, I'll admit, up front, worship as the, the word worship doesn't come up in this passage. So just so you know, I'm not making this up or sort of trying to force this passage into my preconceived notion of what I want to talk about. This passage, chapter 66, is like a mirror to chapter 1. We looked at it at the very beginning of our series. And there, Isaiah was calling out Israel for false worship. It was, about, it was a, a passage, it was sort of a laundry list of charges against them and their failure to come to God on, on God's terms. They were very religious, but they were missing it. They weren't coming to God in the way that God wanted them to. And so full circle, at the, at the last chapter, it balances out the picture started in chapter 1 and says, okay, after all I've said, here's how I want you to respond to me. It's, it shows that it's a concern with worship, even without using the word, because it refers to the temple. Because verses after the ones we're going to look at are talking about sacrifices again. Sacrifices that that matter to God, sacrifices that, that don't, that God doesn't want. The whole context is about right worship. And what we want to do today is try to get a good sense on what we should be like in our posture towards God if we want to please Him when we come to Him. What it would look like, not just, we're not talking about corporate worship on Sunday mornings, but how to live a life that relates to God in the way that, that is appropriate given who God is and what pleases Him and what He, what he tells us about those things in this passage. So we're going to look at Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And we're going to find two things there. False worship presumes that God needs something from us. That's what we want to avoid. That's part one of the contrast. And then we're going to see that true worship, worship that pleases God, is worship that expresses an absolute dependence on Him. What we're going to, what we're going to show is that this particular way of approaching God is the only one that makes sense given everything we've looked at together in the last five months. 
We're going to try to put a bow on the series as a call to worship with your lives. Now, if you found Isaiah 66, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? We're going to read from the first two verses this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You may be seated. False worship presumes God needs something from us. That is the point of the first verse and a half. And it's a point we've seen already in Isaiah several times. Israel was really hung up on this. Because they were very religious, even in the midst of all of their sin, their mistreatment of each other, and their worship of idols. They were still very religious and, and very regular in their sacrifices to God and their coming to the temple. And God had, had nothing for it. And we're going to see a little bit about why this morning. The opening lines of this chapter, I think they're almost satirical lines. You might not have gotten that in just reading it once. If you read it over and over, you start to see it. The Lord here is repeating ideas that run all through Isaiah about how he is transcendent over everything. He's, he says that, that heaven is my throne. Think about heaven. Stretches as far as you can see in every direction. It dwarfs everything else in your view. You can go into it and drive all day, for a year, and you never get past it, right? It just keeps expanding in front of you. It's seemingly, from our perspective, never-ending. This heaven is his throne. He sits on it. The earth, with all its majesty, with its incredible scale that dwarfs us and makes us as humans feel small. Think about the... Think about the, the, the impression you get when you, when you stand before a huge mountain range, or before the ocean and its power. When you, when, the impression you get, I, I'm assuming, when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you haven't been there, but I hear you get this impression where you just awe, you feel small, right? Think about the earth and all of its majesty, its incredible scale, the way that it dwarfs us. And now, and now see that the earth is merely God's footstool. Compared to God, in a sense, we don't want to abuse this idea, but in a sense, it's insignificant compared to him. It's where he puts his feet. It's small. So the satirical question now maybe will land differently. Given that heaven and all of its bigness is God's throne, it's where he sits, and given that the earth and everything that's in it is, is basically a footstool for him, where is it again? that you built this house for me? Where is it that you think I should come and, and, and lay down and rest? Where is, where is that temple again? You see what he's saying. He's correcting, to them. he's correcting in them a sense that they have something he needs. A sense that apart from them, he goes homeless. He is not that kind of God. The verse is a reference to the temple and to the religious system of Israel. And, and we have to be careful here, right? Because these things were commanded by God. 
In fact, he gave them all the regulations for how to build the temple. He wrote the plans. He sketched it out for them. And he commanded the sacrifices that they would do in the temple. These things were good. The problem wasn't the temple or the sacrifices. What he's correcting here, what he's even, really, what he's even mocking right here is, that, is what Israel had consistently done with this building and with this system. We've seen it already in several passages. We saw it a little bit in chapter 1, chapter 58. It came up again, chapter 64. These places where Israel is, is, is basically complaining to God. They're saying, look at how religious we've been. Look at how many sacrifices we made to you. Look at this house we built for you. Why are our lives so messed up? They're looking at the fact of their life, right? The fact that they were colonized, basically, by a power that they couldn't control. The fact that they would eventually be shipped off to lands that were foreign to them and, and, and would be forced to serve foreign pagan kings and have no, no power, no standing in the world. They looked at this, and God wasn't doing anything about it. And they said, well, why don't you care about all these things that we've done for you? See, what they were showing is that they thought God would owe them if they offered him things like a temple, sacrifices, whatever else, they, they see the machine as broken. You put your money in, you pull down your lever, and you get your prize. But the problem is that it wasn't a machine to begin with. God had set this system up not as a way of getting something out of Israel, but as a way of requiring from Israel an expression of their dependence on him. So their sacrifices weren't about God needing some grain to eat. You gave a grain offering to show that you know you wouldn't have had this grain if God hadn't given it to you. You may as well just give it back to him because it came from him to begin with. You couldn't control all the forces in the world that are necessary for that grain to grow. It's meant to express the effects of God's grace in their lives, their own weakness and dependence on him and their trust in his resources. But like their pagan neighbors, they had turned these practices not into expressions of their weakness and dependence on him, but into expressions of of strength. Here's what I have to offer. This is something that makes me strong, and I'm going to give it to you in order to get something else out of you. They expressed exactly the opposite of what this system was set up to express. And God doesn't care about it. He is not the kind of God that needs to be served by his creatures. I think another way of saying this is that their worship had become more about them than about God. Their worship was more about what they could offer to God than what they needed from Him, than their their all-of-life dependence on Him. I wish we had time to, to sit here to think about the ways in which we're guilty of this. I think every time, I think every time in our lives that we're angry about some sort of circumstance that we don't like. We're tempted at least a little bit to wonder why God would let it happen. And I think just about every time we go there, we're also showing that somewhere in us is Israel's impulse to give to God, live for God, serve God, so that God will owe us the things that we want out of our lives. In other words, what we're showing is that we think our religious performance, our best attempts to live the principles of the Bible, are a bargaining chip we use to get what we want from God. As if our lifestyles 
are something we offer to him as a resource rather than a response to the fact that God has already given us everything that we need. This is a God that won't be harnessed like that. He is the Holy One who made everything that is. There is nothing that we can give to Him that isn't His already. He doesn't need us to build a house for Him. He doesn't need us to serve Him so that He has what He needs. He is looking for those who are weak. He is, what, what He's looking for is people who are so weak and so aware of their weakness that He can use their lives as a venue for displaying His power because it's only people who give it up who know they have nothing, who bring nothing to the table, who when they are established in strength and in peace have no way to explain it except that God is big enough to establish and secure and care for even them. And that is what God wants from us. That leads us directly to the second point. This is the most important thing, the thing we would really want to unpack this morning. That is what true worship looks like. If you want to offer to God a life of worship that shows how valuable he is, that, that explains and expresses for the world his worth, then here's how you have to come to him. You have to come to him with nothing. Verse 2 has one of the most incredible lines in the Bible. If you really think about it, if you sit on it, this is the one to whom I will look. The person who's speaking here this is the God who made everything that is. When the heavens, with all of their expanse, are basically his seat. And the earth with all of its beauty and goodness, all of its bigness and power and intricacy is just where he kicks his feet up. This God, this sovereign God looks on you. You in your smallness, in your your boundedness to time and place. You among the billions of people in the world, among the, the thousands and thousands of years of human history. He will look at you. And look not just to see you, he sees all things. This is a look to save. He knows your problems and applies himself to them if if you're this kind of person. The Lord will look on the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. And he will look on the one who trembles at his word. We want to park here for the rest of our time. We got to get clear on what these things mean. What does it look like to be one who is humble and contrite in spirit? And what does it look like to be one who trembles at God's word? Because unless that characterizes us, then we are not the kind of people through whose lives can display the goodness of God because everything we have is from him. I want to unpack each each of these terms, starting with, I'm just going to call it humility. I think that's a, a summary way of, of, of referring to this person who's humble and contrite in spirit. Um, in, the original, in the original language, the Hebrew here, the word, the word for humble refers to people who are beaten down by, by the powerful. In their case, those who, who held the keys to the world's resources and who had the power to oppress them. They're those who were pushed down, held down, oppressed. I think we can generalize from this, even to those of us who aren't living under that sort of physical oppression that, that some in Israel may have known. I think we can, we can faithfully generalize from this to say it's, it's people who were beat down by life, 
by all the things in our lives that are bigger than us that we just can't control, you know? Things like, you know, like, like, like where we're going to get our jobs or how our kids are going to turn out or you know, how we're going to make relationships work. All of these things that, are, that are, involve factors that are so complicated and so far beyond our ability to manipulate that we feel dwarfed by them and beat down by them. This is someone who's been broken by their life. That's the humble person. Contrite in spirit also may not come through clearly. It's a, it didn't to me. When I first read it, I thought it was somebody who was sorry for their sin. And I think that that's, that's part of it. But, but in, in reading more about this word that's used here, it's actually, it's actually less sorrow for specific sin than, than a brokenness by sin. It's someone who, who is living out or reaping the fruits of sin in their life. Uh, the way that, that it's literally translated could be that they're lamed in spirit. To be contrite is to be lamed. You're limping. You've realized that you've come to the end of yourself, that your sin has made you empty, broken, having nothing to offer. The Lord looks on those who reach the end of themselves and then look beyond themselves to him as their only hope. In other words, this description, the, the humble and the contrite in spirit, is calling us back away from the essence of what sin is, which is a self-centeredness, a living in this life as if we're the sun around whom all the other planets of the world revolve, right? As if it's really all about us, a living as if God and others are not as central as, as we are to our lives. And there's nothing that comes more natural than that, right? It, that, that is in all of us. And this person is one who's come out of that, who's been broken, so broken, by their lifestyle as a self-centered person, that they've realized their own emptiness and they can, they're finally ready to receive God's grace, filling them up. Now, I think a, a huge question here is how to pursue this kind of humility. Because it, it is so unnatural and, and kind of abstract. And we don't have time to do that. We don't have time to, to, to talk about how the different, different lifestyle practices that you can use to pursue humility. And I bring it up only because there's a really helpful, short, readable book that'd be great to read with somebody. Um, if you're looking for it, it's just called Humility. Uh, it's by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. We had one on the resource table for a while, but I think it's gone. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon if you want. A book called Humility by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. It's very practical. In fact, I think like two, two-thirds of the book is, is suggestions on what to do, like tangible steps you can do to cultivate humility in yourself. It's really helpful. This morning what I want to do... <laughs> I want to still be practical, but not so much nuts and bolts. What I want to do is try to help us get better self-awareness. What I want to do is try to help us see in ourselves where we are on this count. Where we are in, in our need to be humble and contrite in spirit. Where we, where we aren't what we need to be and how we can, how we can at least start looking towards becoming that. And I want, I want to make three statements on this, okay? Two things to watch out for, one thing to do. One, one sort of practical step to help. I want, you to, I want us to watch out for self-exaltation. I want us to watch out for self-absorption. These are both bitter, fundamental enemies of being humble and contrite in spirit. And then third, to help do that, I'm going to encourage you to ask other people to speak into your life. I'm going to take these one at a time. Watch out for self-exaltation. I think the most typical look of pride in our experience is our tendency to compare ourselves favorably to other people. We all do it, right? 
That's what I mean by self-exaltation. Exalting who you are, what you have, what you, what you offer, what makes you you above others. That, at its most basic, every time we do it, is a kind of self-justification. We're saying we are right, we are who we should be because of these things that are true about us. Now, it rarely ever is, it's, it's subtle, this tendency to exalt ourselves. And it's usually subconscious. I don't think many of us ever really will like actually think in our mind, I'm so glad that I'm so much better than that guy. It usually is, is a lot harder to identify than that. Here's one way it could show up. It could show up in your self-reliance. There's a way to live that is, looks on the surface very self-giving to other people. You're constantly serving them and, um, and, and doing things for them. But are you willing to receive that kind of service from others? Do you ever see your need for them? Are you ever willing to have them do for you? Or do you kind of bow up a little bit at the idea that someone might give you something, might serve you? If so, I think what it shows even though you wouldn't have put words to it necessarily, is that you think you aren't others. They may need something, but you don't. And it's probably filtered into the way you're living before God. I think implicitly, when, when we're unwilling to receive from other people, we show that we approach God too, as if we have something to offer Him. As if, as if we have something that justifies ourselves. If, if we can say, God, look at this thing that I have. Look, look at how great I am in this one area. And even if we wouldn't put words to it, we're showing we approach God just like Israel has when we compare and we come out good in our comparisons. Now, here's another way. This is maybe even a better telltale sign, another way to recognize it. I'm trying to get self-awareness here. How you recognize when you're when you're giving in to self-exaltation, I think one of the telltale signs is if you find yourself often preoccupied with the flaws of other people. Again, probably wouldn't ever articulate in your mind, I'm so glad I'm better than that person and I don't have that person's problem. But do you find yourself often noticing the problems of others, maybe talking about them, maybe personalizing them and getting put off by them? When you do, when you're preoccupied with the flaws of other people, for that, for that to thrive in you, what it requires is a sense that you're not guilty in the way that they are, that you're different. It may not be, it may not be that, that you think you're... If, if, you're to, if you were to find yourself looking down on somebody for one thing that they do that you never have done, what it shows is that you haven't made a connection that you may not have done this, but you're guilty of other things. You've shifted your standards to these areas that make you look really good and blinded yourself to all these other areas in your life that matter to God that you're just not holding yourself accountable to. What it shows is that, you, that your differences with this person are more significant than your difference from God's standards. It would be kind of like me, as a bald man, with a front-to-back balding pattern, elevating myself over a man who's balding from back to front. Both bald. Still bald, right? 
But if I sort of feel like I'm better, at least, at least mine's going this way, not this way. This looks so much better than when it balds from the back to the front. To, to make that work, I have to so narrow my perspective that I, as if I've never seen what a good, full, thick head of hair looks like. As if I've forgotten that the standard is not the pattern through which you bald, but whether you bald, right? And so with, with God, for, for us to be so preoccupied by the things that we don't like about other people or by their failures or their flaws, by the way they've treated us, for us to give ourselves into that, what we're showing is that we, have, we are comparing ourselves to them as if they were the standard in this area, and we're forgetting that we've got all these other areas in our life where we are just as guilty, just as fallen, just as subject to God's to God's standards that have been broken by us. Here's the way C.S. Lewis puts it in a great chapter of Mere Christianity. He said, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, I love this image, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you, right? Is that simple? As long as you're constantly looking down on other people, you can't see anything that's above you. And once you notice what's above you, you'll stop looking down on other people. Here's, here's the way he continues, talking about religion and how, how even, even in our religiousness sometimes we can be deceived into thinking we're serving God, but ultimately we're just making ourselves feel better and looking down on people who aren't as religious as us. He says, so how do you know whether you're guilty of that in your religious practice? He says, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small and dirty object and it's better to forget about yourself altogether. This leads us directly to the second thing. Watch out for self-absorption. This notion of forgetting about yourself altogether, I think it's crucial because there's a, there's a way that pride can deceive us by the way it shows itself in our lives when we become self-absorbed in our brokenness. Right? There's a way to, be, to look like you're lame in spirit because you're very preoccupied with your problems. Like You see your needs, right? They're, they're big and bold and vivid and in HD in front of you. And so you feel like, like you're broken in what's happened to you. And surely that makes me humble. But it could be that your problems are bigger in your mind and heart than the character and the promises of God. That your problems are bigger in your mind and heart than the needs of other people. And if that's true, then what it shows is that pride is just looking different in you than it does in others. Let me, let me explain this a little bit more. Let's say, let's say your, your brokenness that you think maybe qualifies as true humility and contriteness in spirit shows up like a real shame over things that you've done. Like you're just really weighed down by guilt. You can't get past it. Often what this shows, when you can't get past the things that you've done, when you're really preoccupied with your track record, really what it, what it often shows, I think, is that you think deep down that you're better than your record. What bothers you so much about the way you failed is that you know you're better than that. That's not who I am. I can't have done this, can I? That's not me. It's what makes you so sensitive. I mean, one, of the, one of the ironic things is that when we're, when we're most weighed down by guilt, we're also, at that same time, in that weakness and brokenness, 
both sensitive to other people feeling the same way about us that we feel about us. If, other, if somebody else notices the thing that makes us hate ourselves, we're really sensitive to that, and we are defensive about that a lot of times. And I think what we're showing is that we, we really don't want them to think that's who we are. We think we're better. Even in our shame and our brokenness, we think we're better than we are. It's just pride showing up in a different way. And, and, and the real essence of this is that, is that when our needs get this prominent in our mind, when they're this absorbing to us, what they show is that we, they aren't met yet. When you go, when you're, when you're living your life completely absorbed by your brokenness, your pain, and your shame, when you can't rise above it, what you're showing is that you have needs that have not been met yet by the gospel. And if they haven't been met yet, it's not because the gospel can't meet them. It's because you haven't realized that you can't meet them. And you're still trying to make it work. What it shows is that you haven't become lame in spirit yet. You haven't, real, you haven't reached the end of your rope. You're carrying your needs around and not offloading them onto the Jesus who has borne our sorrows and borne them fully. I got a great in, image of this from, from a sermon from Tim Keller recently, a pastor up in New York City. He was talking about how, how our ego, our sort of sense of ourself, not our pride, but just sort of our sense of who we are, our identity, uh, how we understand ourselves. It's, it's kind of like, you know, one of your body's joints. When it's working well, you don't even notice it. But when it's off kilter, when there's something wrong with it, when it's been wounded, is when you notice it. When it's unsatisfied and unstable is when you start to notice it. Just like an elbow that normally you don't even think about until you've hyperextended it or torn a ligament or something. And what we show when, when we're absorbed by our own, by our own pain and brokenness could be that our ego, our sense of ourself, is not stable. It's wounded and broken, and it is not secured by Jesus in the way that it should be, that we haven't turned to him. So the bottom line here is that don't assume, you can't, we can't afford to assume that our woundedness and weakness and shame are equal to a contriteness of spirit. It might be a deceptive form of pride and self-centeredness that doubts God's ability to meet our needs. We've got to be careful about that. How can we know the difference between true contriteness of spirit and just self-absorption? That brings me to the third suggestion. We said, watch out for self-exaltation. You've got to be vigilant against this. Watch out for self-absorption. You've got to be vigilant against that because we trick ourselves. Here's the third thing. Because part of our self-centeredness and its nature is is the deceptiveness of it. We need each other to sort out our true condition. Because we're deceiving ourselves so often, we need others speaking into our lives. Because you can't often see your own pride, but you always see other people's pride, right? And what shows how much, how much pride we have in ourselves is how much we are offended by the pride of other people, right? So one way that we pastor each other in community is by opening up our lives to each other and asking each other humbly to speak in. Now, uh, there's, there's a great book by, um, by a guy named Paul Tripp on this, on our, our sort of community ministry to each other, where, where we counsel each other in the gospel. He talks about Hebrews 3, which says, um, which says that you're supposed to see to it as a community that no one is hardened by sin's deceitfulness, Right? That sin is so deceptive, if we're on our own, we'll deceive ourselves. We need each other to make sure that no one's getting deceived here, right? 
And Tripp says this about that passage. It says that this, this passage teach that, teaches that personal insight is the product of community. I love that. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I'm going to listen to my own arguments. I'm going to believe my own lies. I'm going to buy into my own delusions. Basically, I'm going to live life in my own head. I love this. My self-perception, Trip continues, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold up the mirror of God's word in front of me. Now, this needs to be a trusted friend, right? Not saying here that you need to open yourself up to just criticism from people. We're not talking about criticism. We're talking about someone who loves you, who knows themselves to be broken and dependent on God's grace for everything that they have. That's the kind of person you need in your life that you need to open up to and say, what do you see here? Ask them questions like, do I seem more interested in my needs than I do in your needs? Ask them, do you find that I'm often comparing myself to other people when I talk to you? Is that something you see crop up in me a lot? Ask them, how do I respond to correction? Do you feel free to raise something that you see in my life? Or do you find that I normally turn it around and get defensive and try to make it about you? This is a dangerous, threatening, vulnerable thing to do. But it is where humility comes. It's, it's the place from where humility comes. And it's how we serve each other. And we can only do it when we're so confident in Jesus and in his standing for us. That what's true of him is true of us. That we can expose ourselves to each other without fear. Do it or you're in danger. And here's the last thing that I have no time to unpack. The one who trembles at God's word. I've been so convicted by this, by this line this week. Maybe that's why I haven't left myself any time to talk about it. <laughs> because I don't want to preach hypocritically. I realize I don't tremble at God's word like I want to. I think what he's calling for here is, the, is, is an approach to God's word that is just, I'm just quivering with anticipation. Not just fear. There may be some fear in it. But not just fear. It's a sense that life hangs on these words. We know what this is from experience. Um, last, last summer, late in Lindsay's pregnancy with Sam, for a very brief time, just, just a matter of hours, we were afraid that something might be wrong with him. She'd gone in for an appointment, and she was measuring it like several weeks, um, as, as if he was several weeks less progressed than, than he actually was. And we didn't know why. And there was this waiting period, you know, where we had to go in for an extra ultrasound. It was like the whole morning of not knowing. And it didn't last long, and it wasn't that traumatic. But even then, I remember just the, 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 being on the edge of your seat waiting for that next report, right? That next ultrasound. That is what it is to tremble at a word that, that where life hangs in the balance, in a sense. Think about it. Um, think about folks who wait on a biopsy report, right? You tremble with anticipation for that. Think about what you, the way you felt when you went to the mailbox and the admissions letter was in there. You tremble for that. You don't, you don't set that on your counter and just go about your day as if you didn't get that. You tear into it. And God is pleased in us when we come to him knowing that what he says to us is the difference between life and death. That the, that, that our, the world and our place in it hangs in the balance over what he has spoken. 
It is to know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. That this word teaches us of a God who will not be limited by all the things that limit us, who stands above them and powerful over them, a God who, whom we have rejected. It's a, it's, it's a posture that trembles at the thought that we could fail to trust in this God, that we could hear what he promises us and not believe he can make good on it. And it's a, it is a posture that trembles at the thought that this God we have rejected has come to us, that he has taken on flesh in the servant, that he has borne our sins and now invites us to marry him so that our shame no longer defines us, so that we are married to the maker of the universe who holds the world in his hands and who holds us in his hands and that nothing can snatch us out of it. It is to come to that word with a trembling anticipation for what he has in store for us. Do we, are we a community people who come to God's word like that? We're not, are we? I'm not a person who trembles at his word in the way that I should, in the way that I would, if I believe that it was what he tells me it is. So let's pray together as we tie up our series. Let's pray together that we tremble as a community, that we hunger and thirst as a community for the life-giving word of God. May God make it so. Father, help us because we, because we are weak and fickle, because our weakness includes even an inability to see your promises to us as true, because we can't even see that we lack the lameness that you require. We ask that you would help us to see us ourselves rightly, that your spirit would open our eyes, condition our hearts, and help us to love what you've said. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.